Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to Chris Page. Uh, he, he's been on my social media before, kind of talking about his work coaching. Uh, he's, he's trained as an LCSW, but I guess within this community, he's, he's kind of known as one of the best uh, coaches for protracted withdrawal injury. Um, he's uh, been doing this for quite some time and he's developed a framework which he's going to uh, tell us about. This is kind of how Chris thinks about helping people who are going through protracted withdrawal. And, uh, you know, it's a delight to have him here. I'm going to turn it over to you, Chris, and uh, let you kind of introduce your framework. Great. Again, yeah. thank you. It's such a pleasure. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to get this message out to as many people as possible. Um, anybody that knows me or knows of me knows that the thing that I believe more than anything is giving people hope, uh, hope that they can get better from this, hope that they can recover and heal from this and resume a meaningful, productive and beautiful life. And so in that framework of hope, I've created kind of a mnemonic, uh, an acronym in a sense to, um, you know, kind of break down some of the core principles and belief beliefs that I have about recovering from an iatrogenic injury, recovering from akathisia, recovering from any kind of medication injury. Um, and so in the HOPE, you know, the H is hopeful and here. And we're going to talk about the H and the O today. Um, the O being optimism and outlook. And we'll do another one on the P and the E, which is persistence and patience and endurance. And then the final payoff, which is the ecstasy that we get when we recover from, from this type of an injury. But to focus on the H first today, I think a lot of what I talk about is based on stoicism. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a Greek philosophy, you know, really around rational thinking. Um which I know can be extremely hard when you're going through this experience. But, you know, I think Stoicism and then two specific individuals, Viktor Frankl, um, who was a Viennese psychiatrist that was captured by the Nazis and spent a few years in Auschwitz and survived to tell his story and created a, an amazing uh, book called Man's Search for Meaning. And has an enormous amount of quotes that I think apply to this journey. And then the second person that I, I will reference a fair amount is a gentleman named Admiral Stockdale, who uh, was the longest prisoner of war during the Vietnamese War um, in the Hanoi Hilton. And, you know, he created something or people have actually taken his words and created something called the Stockdale Paradox, which is this idea of a dual focus of never losing focus on the fact that you can survive this, but at the same time dealing with the day-to-day -day horrible reality of this journey. Um, but, you know, maybe let's start with Stoicism, just real a quick overview before I mm -hmm. jump into the H. And Stoicism is based on four virtues, which are wisdom, courage, temperance and justice and i think those are things that all of us can kind of use as general guidelines as we're struggling to get through an iatrogenic injury which i know can be so overwhelming because you feel disbelieved you feel isolated uh you often lose social support because uh, nobody seems to really understand this process especially in the medical profession 
Um, and the first part of those virtues being wisdom is kind of the idea of knowing what you can control and what you can't control and accepting those differences. It's very similar to what I would say is the serenity prayer that a lot of people know from like 12 step programs or just the serenity prayer is something I think it applies to a host of situations. And that's just, you know, the idea that I know what I can influence, I know what I can't influence, and then I have the wisdom to know the difference and the wisdom mm -hmm. to know where I fit in that. And I think that's a huge part of this is, is you know, trying to figure out where I do have maybe even a small amount of influence and where I just have to kind of almost radically accept what's happening. And I think that's another core part of this is radical acceptance. You know, the idea, again, that um, it doesn't mean that I'm okay with what I'm experiencing. It doesn't mean that I approve in any way, of, you know, of what I'm experiencing. It just means I'm no longer fighting the current reality of my situation. And I'll speak a little bit more about how I have incorporated radical acceptance into hope and, and staying in the present. Um, the second virtue of stoicism is courage. And courage is an essential part of this journey for everybody. This is... I would argue the hardest thing that most people will ever have to endure in their life. And it's the courage required. Um, in a sense, we don't know what we're capable of until we have to be capable of it. And I think that's kind of a guiding principle is I never knew how strong I was until I had to be strong. And I think it was the courage that I showed, you know, to act with the brave, you know, kind of temperament despite my fear, despite how overwhelmed I was, despite the reality of the situation, that I was losing everything, that I couldn't fight back, that I couldn't somehow um, will my way through this. I just had to accept that these fears and anxieties were going to persist until I healed or recovered, but I could accept that this is where I was. You know, I think I referenced in our, in our other interview, a rip current, the idea again that the best way to survive a rip current is to relax, to let go of the fight. And you bob to the surface. When you fight the rip current, you drown. And I think in many ways, you know, while it's not going to change your symptoms per se, it's the ability to frame things in a way that you're not at least fighting the concept of what you're fighting. You're fighting the symptoms on a daily basis. But you're not fighting the concept of the journey. You're not fighting the fact that you have to really let go maybe of some past beliefs about things and past paradigms just to give yourself the perspective and the framework to get through this. And that kind of fits in with the next of the virtues, which is temperance, which is the idea of, of self-control, of acting moderately. You know, again, when you're in that frantic distress state, it's easy, very easy to be catastrophizing it's very easy to envision a future that never is going to be better but as best as we can temper that and moderate it and, and say to ourselves i can do this or while it is the worst thing i'm experiencing i can still handle this somehow and to try to keep our highs and lows as best as we can again this is all framework and i know the day-to-day -day and the moment to moment is excruciating and overwhelming often but again, it's the ability to the best of my ability to have some kind of moderate view that it's not the end of the world, that I can get through this, that I can persist and survive. And then the last is this idea of justice. But what it really means is justice for ourselves. Clearly, we would like some justice when we recover. I get that. And maybe 
you know, a, a thing that people can envision in that justice framework mm-hmm. is maybe when they do heal, you know, and recover, being able to be an advocate in the system, being somebody that writes about their experience, somebody that speaks about their experience, somebody that volunteers for a nonprofit that's doing work in this arena. But I think as the journey unfolds, the real key is is, is self-compassion, the ability to love myself when I feel so unlovable, to be able to love myself when I feel so disconnected from myself, you know, because again, love is the foundation of, of, of really everything. It's, it's kind of what defines who we are. And it's that self-love, even in if it's 1%, giving myself the grace and the compassion that I deserve because I'm enduring something that is so, so challenging. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's the ability to maintain, you know, some semblance of purpose and envisioning a future without this in a compassionate way. Yeah, I, I, I really like a lot of the things that you were saying there. I mean, one, one thing that I'm going to pull on, which which I think is you know, the, that interesting analogy of, um, you know, not fighting the rip current because um, it's so easy uh, almost to, to make things worse through your panic. And let's, let's try and think about some of the things that happen, uh, I guess, when, when, you, when you're panicked and you're not having acceptance. I mean, one of the things may be, um, you know, in desperation, you end up you know, reaching for other substances. Yeah, I mean, you may end up on multiple different, you know, medications and things like that at high doses, which could make things worse because there isn't that, I guess, well, maybe, maybe you don't have the wisdom yet to understand, okay, I have a protract, you know, I have a withdrawal injury right now and um, it's okay and I'm going to recover. I mean, if you don't know that and then you're just in this panic state, you can end up in bad places, I guess, detox type facilities. You could also end up on all these kind of medications. And and that's you kind of fighting against the the rip current. Whereas if you just kind of let it take you, sometimes just the anxiety, the, you know, the knowing what's going on and knowing that it has a time course, that can lessen your symptoms. Because when you're fighting something and you're really anxious, it amplifies things. Um, and uh, yeah, that, I mean... I think that's just such a you know relevant point. And I think also I've joked you know, before, if fighting the symptoms would work, I would have recovered a long time ago. You know, <laughs> yeah. because it's it's natural to fight something so distressing, so frantic, and you know, inducing, so scary, so overwhelming. But at the same time, it does it's not productive. It doesn't lead to any you know. It doesn't make the journey any easier. And I think that's what we're all trying to find is ways to make this incredibly challenging journey any easier. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, some of that really comes, you know, fits in with what I'm going to talk about with Outlook. But sure. Okay. So, you know, in my mnemonic of hope for H, I have two two words, hopeful and here. And first, what's hope? Hope is an expectation of the future and a desire and a belief that something can happen in the future. So, again, you know. There's that we have to have hope that this is going to get better. It has to be an unflappable, you know, a core, you know, indisputable fact that I am going to get better from this. Will I 100% heal? I don't know. 
Will you heal enough that your life is well worth living and recover enough that your wife is what you know your life is well worth living? Yes. That I can say pretty much as a guarantee from what I have seen is that people recover at least to a point that their life is completely worth living and enjoyable and functional. And I think that's what's so important. You know, the idea that you can go from hopeless to hopeful. And it's, again, a testament to the human potential, the human will to live inside of us that we all have. We all want desperately to feel better. And we want to turn this personal tragedy into a triumph. I think that's another part of the hope is that I can envision a future where I've taken this tragedy, and it is a tragedy for many of us, but we turn it into something productive. Look at what I've done. You know, I have taken my own personal tragedy and I've created a, a coaching business where I help a host of people every week, giving them hope and support. And I've also created a research institute to, to figure out if there are ways we can actually give people tangible, you know, options. Mm -hmm. That to me is, is what we should all be focusing on in our future oriented fantasies is how am I going to take this experience and integrate it into becoming who I become? You know, as my girlfriend once said to me, the you know, one of the first nights we ever, you know, met each other she said you're the most grateful person i've ever met in my life and of course i have to be grateful i'm, I'm sitting first off i can sit calmly i get to talk to you i get to mm -hmm. you know share ideas i get to help people i get to be productive i get to live a life how can i not be grateful for that so we have to incorporate even gratitude of you know for some of us that are suffering maybe you have social support maybe your family does understand and they're helping Try to be grateful for that, even though it doesn't, it's not going to change the symptoms per se, but it can at least make the journey a little bit, a little bit easier possible. So Chris, again, that hope, that future oriented, you know, expectation. And one of my favorite quotes is, um, you know, from, from Admiral Stockdale, and it's just the idea that he says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out for him it was getting out of the of the you know the prison camp. For us it's getting out of this iatrogenic injury. But also that I would prevail in the end. Okay, that we're going to win, we're going to defeat this. Prevail in the end and turn that experience into the defining experience of my life, the defining event in my life, which then in retrospect you would never change. You would never trade. And again, it's impossible to see that when you're in the middle of this journey. I get that. But it's the hope that as I get through this, this will define who I am and will create an even better version of myself on the other side when I come out the other side. Because like I said, I'm more grateful than I've ever been. I'm more patient than I've ever been. I'm much less anxious than I've ever been. And that's because, again, one of the things I committed to myself was that I would improve the things that led me into this at the beginning. So, so taking that opportunity to really integrate this awful, challenging experience into the core definition of who I am. I'm now a survivor. I'm a warrior. I'm somebody that looks at myself you know, in a very positive light because of what I've survived. And you'll be able to do the same thing as you heal from this. But again, Chris, think of what he said. I never lost faith of the story. The story being the end of the story is going to be a good ending. I'm writing an ending to the story that I want. 
and I'm not doubting that I can achieve it. So let me ask you this. Um, let's let, I want to bring it back to kind of what it would look like working with you. You know, someone comes in, you know, they're su- they're highly anxious and they're suicidal. When you're trying to teach them hope, is it you know, is it educating about the course of of recovery? Is it is it making is it generating things that 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 they should focus on and be grateful for? How do you what what does that look like? You know, kind of in your first couple sessions when you're you're saying, how do I build up hope in this person? You know, I think I think a lot of it really depends on the individual client, but I think mm-hmm. you know, theoretically, I, I give them an analogy, which is you're in a dark cave and I'm a miner and I've got a helmet on that's got a light mm-hmm. and I'm going to come and take your hand and I'm going to use the light because I know what direction to go mm-hmm. and I'm going to help pull you out of this cave because I think what people you know so often need to hear is my story how I survived how I did it you know because it's kind of proof of concept in a sense you know this is how it worked for me. These are the things I did to do this. Yeah. And, and I think that combined with normalizing their experience, you know, of course you feel that way. Of course you're scared of that. Of course you doubt this, you know, normalizing, because again, think about how many people's experience has been, They've been gaslit. They've been basically told what you're telling me doesn't exist. What you're telling Mm -hmm. me is not possible. What you're telling me doesn't make any sense. And to give somebody that validation and give somebody that, you know, acknowledgement that, that, you know, I think another term I used last time was abnormalizing things, which is taking abnormal experiences and normalizing them. Because that's what this experience is for for many of us is it's so outside the realm of normal human experience that if we don't, in a sense, abnormalize the and normalize it, 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 it makes it even more scary and overwhelming because it seems so outside of the realm of normal human experience. Yeah. But by saying to myself, you know, that's one of the gifts I gave myself was all right, I'm pacing eight hours today. You know, I'm frantic. I, I can't stand it for another second. But this is a normal day. Yeah. This is a no, normal I, part of this journey. You know, and, and, and one thing I notice when people come, I guess, to my practice, and you know, tangentially, I kind of have become a coach because, you know, in my practice at the moment, it's just my wife and I, so we kind of do everything. And I, and I wouldn't say that I have, you know, amazing, you know, that I'm this amazing coach with this, you know, very well-developed psychotherapeutic background. I have done a lot of supportive therapy in the past, but what I do notice is that people tend to get better very quickly after they join our practice. And I don't think it's because their symptoms have lessened. I think it's because their panic has lessened. You know, yes. they've, they've been able to sit down with someone for, you know, two hours usually who has normalized their experience, who has been able to kind of let them know that they are not alone and that it's fine. And it's almost just going through that, I think, that helps people calm down enough where, you know, their symptoms are still there. They're at the same severity, but their distress about the symptoms has has gone down a fair, you know, a noticeable amount. I would agree. You know, there's nothing more powerful, again, than hope, you know, than telling a person, I know you can get better, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, you know, so much of this is faith. 
you know, in the absence of current evidence, I must trust the process, right? In the absence of the fact of anything to indicate I'm getting better, I have to have faith that other people have felt very similar to what I'm experiencing. And they've kind of, in a sense, blazed a trail ahead of me that I will walk mm -hmm. as I walk out of this. You know, and as somebody that was pacing 12 hours a day, I did a lot of walking yeah. and, you know, and a lot of walking out of that, you know, and, and I think that kind of fits in with the next H, which is here. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea again, you know, what does here mean? It means in or at or in this place or position where I am right now. And one of the only ways I survived this, because I knew that the support medicines they gave me in the detox were going to take years to taper. I knew that this was going to be a long drawn out journey. And if I'd focused on that, I probably would have you know, not made it. I would have given up because it would have just felt too overwhelming. You know, again, it's the idea of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, you can't <laughs> eat the whole elephant. And so this idea of here was I had to learn to stay in the present moment to the best of my ability. I had to learn to say things to myself like, this is not forever. This is not forever, okay? But at the same time, say to myself, I can't deal with that today. I can't worry about that today. I can't focus on that today. I only have to focus on getting through today. And another one of the little tricks I gave myself is I won't harm myself today. And even though that was tenuous at times, very tenuous at times, I still stuck to that belief somehow that if I just can, you know, not harm myself today, then I automatically get to the next day. Even though that one day getting through again is incredibly challenging, incredibly overwhelming. And in many ways, it was almost like the little train that could, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, you know, I know I can, I think I can, I can't, there's no way I can do this. I think I can, I can't, I think, you know, again, I think I even referenced in our last interview, I was 50.1% in, 49.9% couldn't do it, but somehow that little bit was just enough to keep me hanging in there. And yeah, I'm going to kind of riff off that. I, I think that is, you know, just, just, um, how important that is, you know, when when you have a very complicated problem in your life, a scary problem, how easy it is to be overwhelmed and just go, I don't even know where to start. How do I pull myself out of this? I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You're on the forums. You're on the communities. You're getting so many different pieces of information. How do I implement all of it? Again, you know, one of the benefits, I think, of working with, with a coach or someone that's benzo wise or wise to protracted withdrawal injury is that they can focus you down on one thing because Chris, you're absolutely right. When you're going through this, you need small actionable steps. We need to get from here to here and then we'll get from here to here and then from here to here. Yep. And if you worry about that whole process, again, it's going to generate anxiety and panic. You, you're going to not know what to do. You're going to be frozen and you really kind of need someone to say, you know, this is where you are. And we're yep. just going to get you from here to here and just cut everything else out and don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. And that's how you, that's how you get out of this cave, you know, like, you know, to, to go off your metaphor before you, you got to break it into little pieces, like anything challenging, you know, I want to become a, you know, LCSW, you know, 
how the heck am I going to do that? But, you know, okay, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to meet this person and I'm going to study and then I'm going to make these kind of, like it's all complicated things that you do in your life. You want to break them into actionable pieces and, you know, working with a coach like Chris or, you know, someone like myself or my wife, we can, we can do those little steps with you and kind of take a lot of that, that overwhelm out of it. Well, it's, yeah. it's kind of the same idea of how I rebuilt my life. You know, I mean, I lost everything and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get it all back in a day. You know, mm-hmm. you know I had to, you know, set realistic short-term goals to slowly rebuild. And I think it's kind of that same idea. But again, what we all want is that forward momentum, you know, that we're, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that's the key too, is that to, you know, to imagine, even if I'm feeling a little worse on a day or getting worse, <laughs> that I'm still progressing toward the goal. Mm-hmm. And I think it fits in with just one other quote I want to share from Dr. Admiral Stockdale, which is he said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose. It's that faith that we have to have that we're going to get through this. But you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. You know, it's this is brutal, this process. And we, you know, I was losing everything and I couldn't really confront those facts in the sense that I could do anything about it, but it was just that radical acceptance again. Okay. I'm losing everything now. I will trust in the future, whatever I choose to get back, I can get back. And then again, I have this dual focus. I will, I don't waver in my commitment to the fact that I'm going to get through this, Mm -hmm. but then it's like, how am I going to get through this? And it's the day-to-day fight, either the management of the day-to-day. Like I said, you know, I would pace and I'd count one, two, three, four, five. Imagining those steps getting me somehow closer to the end. I mean, but that number felt like infinity for a while. It felt like I could count steps to, to infinity and it still wasn't getting me there. But I had to have the faith that those steps were ultimately leading me to the goal of healing, mm-hmm. the goal of recovery. Yeah, that goal that you tell yourself, I'm, I'm not going to harm myself today. I mean, it can be as simple as that. You yeah. know, that's the step yeah. I'm taking today. You know, that's I'm, I'm, it. Yeah. You know, because today, you know, that's one of the gifts of this awful process is you, you finally learn, at least I finally learned, that there is only one day I have any control over, and it's today. Mm-hmm. And it's really been a guiding principle for my life ever since then. And, you know, I think it just allows you to let go of the future-oriented worry and the past-oriented flogging and self-regret and, and all the things that come from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think, again, you know, maintaining that future-oriented hope. I've spoken about future-oriented fantasies before. That was one of the things that guided me. You know, I was going to do a TED Talk. I'm writing that. Going to create a research institute to study that this i've done that i was going to play live music again i was able to do that a few months ago and i was going to find a woman that i believed was somehow out there waiting for me and i've done that too and so i think those are the things that you know we, and again it wasn't like i was fantasizing like relaxed on the couch envisioning things it was just this very small voice somewhere deep in the recesses of my mind of, of things that i hoped i could achieve and attain when i survived this and again, the day-to-day then became that staying present, staying in the present mo- moment, not getting too far in the future, not ruminating about the past to the best of my ability. I mean, there were intrusive thoughts and the songs would loop in my head for days. You know, I would, you know, there was a lot of self-deprecation, a lot of self-hatred, because that's a part of this journey, unfortunately, when you're injured. 
But again, I think that's the best of my ability to maintain some optimism and hope. Yeah, I, I think that's worth stressing, you know, to, to the best of your ability, because um, I don't think anyone could make it through this, like, you know, totally stoic the whole time. I mean, that's not, that's not how your mind works. I mean, when you, when you have a brain injury, it's just um, your thoughts are hijacked. And so that's it. you just I mean, kind of need... I always use, your, you know, your yeah. thoughts are hijacked. And, and I always tell clients, you know, the part of your brain that's responsible for calming you down is not working correctly. So, of course, you're having frantic, you know, scary thoughts because the part of your brain that should calm that and regulate it isn't working correctly. Yeah, it's, it's your brain is getting impulses from all areas of your body. It could be your gut. Yeah. It could be the pain. And it's just saying danger, 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 danger. Something is wrong. You can't even access that part of you to calm down. But well, it's, you it's always the, bring your. Mm -hmm. Well, as I was gonna say, it's the perfect example of of our physical state driving our narrative. It's not our thoughts creating the experience in our body. It's the turbulent experience in our body then creating the thoughts. It's as though our brain is trying to make sense of what's occurring in our body. So it's coming up with all these frantic, scary, catastrophic. Horrible. Thought. It must be another illness. Oh my God. It, you know, I'm dying from cancer. Oh my God. It can't just be from the meds. Oh my God. I'm never going to get better. I can't feel, you know, I mean, it, it, it's really that reverse engineered kind of our brain interpreting the storm that's incurring in our body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the most, I don't know, to me, I think that that's the most, you know, something that's really important. I think to share with family members as well, because oftentimes they just feel powerless when their loved one is in this catastrophic pit, you know, and the thoughts are going all over the place and they go, I don't know what to do. And I'm just saying, I, I tell them, I go, not really being rational right now. They're having a problem. Just go and provide them reassurance. Don't worry about getting into the weeds with the thought, you know, if they're comfortably being touched, you know, rub their back. It's okay. I'm here with you. We're going to get through it. And it's just that, you just want to be with them and offer support while the physical thing that's happening in their body just works its way out. That's I wouldn't, I tell the family, don't stress yourself out about, I need this answer. I need to do this. And I need to like engage with all of it. It's just, just be there. You know? Well, I think a good, a good example of that comes from even the idea of relationship polarity, masculine and feminine energy. And I look at really the family's job is the client or the person's suffering is like a pearl, and then the family's like the clamshell, and they need to protect the pearl from the outside world and everything and keep the pearl safe so the pearl can heal and recover. Mm -hmm. And by creating that kind of shell in a sense of containment, of protection, it really, I think, is the best strategy because it, you know it's not about solving anything for the person. It's about holding them in a container, a cocoon in a sense, and shielding them from the things they can't handle right now and protecting them and giving them, you know, a safe place in a sense, emotionally, physically, spiritually, everything to, to go on this journey and recover at the pace that their nervous system and body will allow. Totally. Um, and, 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 you know, sometimes the anxiety from the family can be damaging because, you know, a lot of people, their response to anxiety is to go, you know, what what do the experts say, you know, and then drag you along to like a detox or maybe to a psychiatrist that's not yep. kind of wise to it. And then they latch onto that, you know, they're, they're lost and confused and scared and they go, you just need to take this antidepressant to deal, you know, with the symptoms yeah. that you're having at the moment. And it can, it can make things 
worse, you know, if the family member is not educated about what's going on and their panic, you know, pushes them into a system that's not really able to help a lot of people. Well, it's, 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 yeah. it's something that I've kind of created that I call the cycle of suicide, which is what happens is if somebody gets iatrogenically injured, they're desperate for help. They go to doctors. Doctors don't understand the problem. The doctors then give misinformation from not a bad perspective, but just because they don't understand the problem. The family then aligns with the medical professional. The person in desperation, almost in almost like a Stockholm syndrome way, says, okay, I'll take it just to show you that I want to get better or that I, you know, I'm listening. And then they take something and they get worse. And then the family gets even more frustrated and gaslights the patient saying the doctor said this isn't possible you know and then you get that fracture in the social support and then the person in desperation maybe does one last intervention to try to improve their symptoms they get worse and then they, they end their life because they feel there's no they're trapped mm. that's powerful yeah i i i, I bet I bet that happens all the time, unfortunately. It does. I mean, that's what I've seen. You know, To me, what I've seen for people that are in a chronic state of an injury is it's often rarely the symptoms alone that cause somebody to end their life. It's usually a fracture in social support or a life change. They lose their home or you know something dramatic that they're already at a very, very fragile place because of the symptoms. And it's that social support fracture that pushes them over. And, it's know, really powerful work on what yeah. you do, keeping those, you know, keeping that clamshell intact. Because by keeping the clamshell intact, the family then can provide, you know, the very, the very thing that the person needs, which is love and support and safety and basic needs being met. And again, the dilemma I think is oftentimes misinformed medical professionals conceptualize this, conceptualize this injury from a an addiction perspective and then the family is 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 kind of tricked into that antithetical belief that if you help somebody you're enabling and you know you're permitting bad behavior you're reinforcing bad behavior when it really what they're doing is they're enabling the person to survive and mm -hmm. that's really how we i i think if we could conceptualize it that way differently as instead of enabling being a negative thing enabling being a very positive thing because it's enabling the person to have the resources and, and the basic needs met that they need to, to get through this journey. It's crazy. I mean, that, that, that story happens all the time as well, where, you know, someone will go to a detox, they'll get rapidly withdrawn, they'll develop protracted withdrawal symptoms. And then they'll say, I want to reinstate because I think I went too fast and I want to try and stabilize my nervous system. And yeah. when you go in there that, you know, whether it's your family or it's the doctor, you know, Oh, you know, you just, you know, you're, you're addicted, you know, you're, you're just trying to get, get back on your thing. And you're it's drug just, seeking. You're drug seeking. It's just a nightmare. Um, that was great. Yeah. I, I really, I really like your clan metaphor and, um, you know, the, what, you know, how you conceptualize the things that really lead to suicide. Um, I think that's just so spot on. Um, optimism, right? So let's jump into optimism. So the yeah. O in my HOPE uh, acronym and mnemonic is for optimism and outlook. And again, I mentioned Viktor Frankl before, who had, had survived a, a Nazi concentration camp. And he created something called tragic optimism, which is 
How can I remain optimistic in the face of pain, guilt, and death? How can one say yes to life in spite of everything that's occurring at that moment? How can I, again, back? it's that focus of how do I commit to this? How do I stay optimistic? And so he come up with, came up with three things someone can do that are kind of the pillars of tragic optimism. The first is to turn suffering into human achievement and accomplishment. Again, that belief that the suffering I'm enduring has a purpose, has a meaning, has some spiritual you know, depth to it, that I will take this awful experience and turn it into something positive when I am able giving me that optimistic view of the future, that I will have some agency. I might not have agency right now, but I will have agency in the future to turn this negative into a positive. Next is deriving from guilt the opportunity to change oneself for the better. I think a lot of people feel guilty in this. They feel guilty that they didn't research the med. They feel guilty that they took the med. They feel guilty that their family and friends are suffering because of their suffering. But also, I think at the core of it is this idea that while this is the most difficult, challenging, awful experience for many of us, it's also an opportunity. You know, in many ways, it was like pouring water into a my personal bucket and I saw where all the holes were and all the water was spraying out. And it was a way for me as I healed and recovered to focus on the things that I needed to change in my life and about myself to give myself the most positive, beautiful future that I deserved from this journey. And so again, I think it's the commitment to, I'm going to get through this. And then the commitment to, I'm going to make myself better as I get through this. And especially when I get through this. And then the, the last one is deriving from life's transitoriness, an incentive to take responsible action. So again, it's just the incentive that I'm going to get through this, that I'm going to commit to getting through this, that I'm going to commit to surviving this. Because people always say, you know, I want to end my life because it'll get me relief. Well, ending your life doesn't get you relief. Ending your life gets you an absence of everything. Relief is I felt this way and now I feel this way. That's relief. It's a contrast. It's a comparison. There's no relief from ending your life. There's just nothingness. And you know, I just ask everybody to stay in the fight because it is worth it. I'm not minimizing the challenge. I'm not minimizing the difficulty. I'm just saying as a one human to another human, your life is special and unique. It's yours only. There's only one of you. And that's why it is so worth it to hang in because that one of you, that special version of you will come out of this even more special and more beautiful and have more opportunities to turn this tragedy into personal triumph. And that's what you deserve for enduring this. But I just ask you to endure it. A question I have is I hear a lot of, I know the, the meaning that you found in your tragedy was, you know, in your advocacy with the Institute for Akathisia, you know, wanting to do research also with your coaching. Um, but I want to say it, it doesn't need to be like, you, you know, I'm going to become a coach or an advocate. It can be other things. You know, I have patients who say, you know, my, my mission for this is, you know, my husband is looking after me now. My husband's a little older. I want to make sure I can care for him when he needs me. You know, it can be something 
much more grounded in your personal life. And I don't know, maybe Chris, you could share some of the other uh, well, missions and I, meanings like simple that things seen. like I want to be a better dad or a better mom. Like I want to be mm-hmm. a better spouse. I want to be a better child to my parents. I want to be better at my work. I want to do different work. You know, I'm inspired now. I think I might have found my my purpose, my 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 personal journey better. You know, I think you know it, it's just a commitment to you know what you want. You know, it's back to those kind of future oriented fantasies. What do you fantasize about? What do you want? What's important to you? I mean, for, I think for many of us, you know, it's 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 such a shock to our system. It really recalibrates so many of our foundational beliefs about things. But I think out of that, we can, in a sense, rise, you know, like the phoenix from the ashes and recreate ourselves in whatever image we want to recreate ourselves in. And that's the opportunity that waits for all of us in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, we talk a lot of the pain and the and the suffering of these kind of iatrogenic injuries, but especially when it comes from like a psychiatric medication as well. It's, it's, it's like an identity rebirth. Man, many people have been kind of in this mindset of, you know, I have this depression or this anxiety and I need this medication. And, you know, if I just do what the doctor says, this is fine. And then that just gets yanked away from you because all of a sudden you've been injured, you've been harmed, there's no informed consent. And then you kind of go down this whole I don't know, you know, you you look back at your life and just start questioning things, you know, you know, what was going on in my life that I needed this medication in the first place? You know, what, what does that say about me? You know, and it's, it's this painful kind of rebirth um, the, at, at the other end, which in, in many ways, I, I actually think it makes people stronger because they end up becoming a lot more self-reliant and having a lot more agency. Um, I completely agree with that. Yeah. And then kind of fits in with the last O, which is outlook. And what's outlook? It's a person's point of view or general attitude towards life. And in this situation, it's my attitude about getting through this. Remember, you know, that, that duality that Admiral Stockdale talked about. I'm going to get through this. How am I going to get through this? Okay. But I am going to get through this. And Viktor Frankl even talks about the fact that, you know, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, think of the circumstances he was in. His fam- Almost all of his family got killed at Auschwitz. He probably lived every day wondering when his time was going to come. And it's kind of the same thing with Admiral Stockdale. He didn't know when he was going to get out of the prison or if he was going to get out of the prison. And I think that's another existential crisis for people in this is, you know, Everybody always says to me, my clients always say to me, if I had an expiration date, it, this would be much easier. If I knew I had, you know, May 1st, these symptoms would change or August 10th, I'd get this. You know, it's, it, it, you know, that, that's one of the most challenging parts of this is when it will end. But I think the question is then becomes too many people get focused on if it will end as opposed to when it will end. And the question we have to keep in the forefront of our mind is when will it end? Because it will end. Will it end completely? I can't say. Will it end, like I said before, that you will have a life well worth living, enjoyable and functional? I believe that a thousand percent. 
And that's where the, you know, again, that commitment to, I am going to get through this. Well, again, my outlook's not going to change my symptoms. It's not going to change the intensity of what I'm experiencing. But it can give me that faith-based hope to hang in there and endure. You know, it can Chris, give me that future-oriented moving energy towards where I'm trying to get. So, Chris, I, I mean, I was talking to Nicole this morning, and I know she's – I think she had her injury around in 2010, so it's it's, yeah. it's, it's 2013 uh, – sorry, 2023 now. And um, just to give you a sense of, I guess, how long some of these can go, if they're really severe, Nicole's a, a much more severe case – but even now, you know, she's able to do a lot more than she used to. Um, and so for those out there who have injuries that are all, you know, lasting several years, it does continue to get better. And, and Chris, maybe you could kind of flag post your journey because you had quite a long injury as well. Yeah, I'm going like, to, I am, uh, what's the 23rd in three days, it will be nine years since the detox. And when, when did, when was, I guess, when would you say the suffering got a little easier? You know, when, talk, talk I, me I'd through say the like there were two the phases. Day. There was the intense, yeah. horrible akathisia phase, which was three years. And yeah. then there was the recovering from akathisia. I call it paying the bill, which is, yeah. I was so agitated like this for years that when I finally calmed down, I went into a deep fatigue for a year and a half where I was bed bound. I couldn't really do much. That's when I gained 80 pounds. Um, and I, I, and I've seen that as a common, you know, healing course for a lot of people that have agitation and restlessness is their main, you know, symptomatology is you, you kind of do the bell curve up until it burns out and calms down. And then you almost do the bell curve down to pay kind of like, rest almost for all the time you couldn't rest kind of pay off the bill in a sense so i've seen that you know over and over repeated with clients um and i think it just makes theoretical sense to me too but for me it was like three years of intense acute level akathisia then about a year after that of still extreme ex agitation and restlessness and cognitive dysfunction and tons of you know head symptoms and depression and anxiety and panic but I wasn't pacing and moving. So that, that had calmed down, mm -hmm. uh, but still highly dysregulated. And then when that finally settled some, it was intense fatigue. You know, like I said, it was just day after day after day in bed, you know, the smallest tasks would exhaust me. You know, I had no, um, you know, no ability to focus for any period of time. I couldn't, you know, I could read lots of little blurbs on like Twitter or on Facebook, but I couldn't read a paragraph and retain anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and then so slowly again, that kind of came back up and, and all of a sudden I was able to start, you know, building a practice and building a life again. And I would say now at almost nine years, I still have residual symptoms, but they don't interfere in my life. And yes, Am I cautious about the tapering of the meds I'm on? Extremely. Am I happy that I'm on them? Not not for one moment. Um, do I think they're helping? Not really, except for sleep. Um, these are the same meds I've taken the entire time. So when I was pacing 14 hours a day, they weren't doing anything then. Um, you know, but I have to be super cautious as I taper them because I don't want to get dysregulated again and I'm enjoying my life too much to take that yeah. risk. That might be another topic, I think, um, 
is actually to, to hone in on that. Like, do I need to get off all my meds to heal? Thing, I which think is- that's a very important topic because I think there's so much misinformation in the community about that. Everybody thinks, everybody thinks that they have a symptom and they're taking a med. It means the med they're tolerant to the med. And that's a lot well, more rare than people think. Well, the other thing is also, you know, when someone has a drug injury, um, what I notice is that a lot of them develop a type of a PTSD type reaction. Anything that is medication related, you know, like if you have a new symptom or something's going yep. on, you immediately think it's one of your other meds. And then it yep. can actually push people to uh, do things that are not safe, like rapidly discontinue other medications. And I'm constantly Which I think reminding. Is the number one cause, I think the number one cause of unnecessary suicide besides um social support fractures are people getting horrific advice in the facebook groups and rapid tapering drugs and getting catastrophically worse yeah so we won't give away too much but we'll probably uh put our heads together and we'll come up with a nice uh, a nice topic about that what you've seen what i've seen i think that would be really useful Um, i do too yeah so chris i think we're i mean we're getting close to about time so i want to bring us to some kind of conclusion Do, do you have any points which you feel like you haven't made no, I think just again that that remember that thousands of people have come before you with the exact same injury and have gotten better. And but I also tell people this is what you know, people, you know, but, but also this is part of the acceptance is people are always like, I'm gonna figure this out. And I'm like, you know, you sound like a lot of my other clients that are looking for a needle in a haystack. Let me save you the trouble. There's no needle. You know, it as things are right now, there's no treatments that we know yet, you know, so it's the acceptance of just that this is a journey that will come to a good resolution, but I have to allow the journey to happen. Mm-hmm. But just know that myself and Dr. Whitdoring and Nicole and other very intelligent people are fighting every day to try to find answers to this, to try to create things that we could discover potential ways to, to, to help people that are in the middle of it. We're just not there yet. One step at a time. You know, you, you've broken it into little steps and we've got the Akathisia Institute now. So that's it. great. Well, Chris, it was a pleasure to have you again. I think your insights are just so spot on. And uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon to cover P and E, persistence and patience and endurance and ecstasy, the, the other part of the framework. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. Excellent. It's such a pleasure always. And thanks again for this interview. Okay. All right. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, Come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.